Join us at Film Society of Lincoln Center on Wednesday, May 8th at 7 p.m. for a film comment free talk with Mary Heron. Her new film, Charlie Says, looks beyond the mythology of the Manson family murders to focus on the experiences of three women under the charismatic killer's spell. For more information, visit filmlink.org. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment with features on Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, Olivier Assayas's Nonfiction, a special section on the 50th anniversary of Film Society of Lincoln Center, reviews of new, forthcoming, and streaming releases, and more. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapol, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. In our March-April issue, Michael Koreski writes a fascinating feature about another movie magazine with a humble name, Films and Filming. Koreski describes the importance of this long-defunct publication as both a classic movie journal and a cultural phenomenon for its gay readers. He writes, Our culture instills mighty shame in us for knowing what we want. And that shame has long been magnified to the point of obscenity, even stigma, when that desire is gay. The shamelessness of the magazine's appeal and the way it so rudely bound sexual desires to movie love felt like a rich, purposeful affront. Jumping off from this feature, Koreski joins this week's podcast for a wide-ranging discussion on the role of desire in our love of movies. We were delighted to also bring in Aliza Ma of Metrograph and Andrew Chan of the Criterion Collection. Let's go to their inspired and revealing talk. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. And uh, today is our special Desire edition of the podcast. Um, and uh, I know my just saying that is, is a very appealing for all our listeners. I love it. The jumping off point for this is from our current issue. We have an article by Michael Koreski about a very interesting journal called Films and Filming kind of lasted from the 50s up until 1990, technically, but was kind of thriving, 50s, 60s, 70s. And we'll talk about that magazine and why it provides a kind of interesting secret history to cinema. But before I go any further, um, I want to introduce our guests today, starting with... Hello, I'm Andrew Chan. I'm the web editor at the Criterion Collection. Hello, I'm Aliza Ma, the head of programming at Metrograph. Uh, and I'm Michael Koreski. I'm Director of Editorial and Creative Strategy here at Film Society of Lincoln Center. So, well, Michael, I mean, let's talk a bit about your article just so we can kind of set the stage here. I mean, tell us a bit about the magazine Films and Filming and, and, and why you wanted to write about it, or maybe why I, I kept on you about <laughs> writing about it. I guess it's because I kept kind of bringing it up in weird uh, contexts. So I have this biweekly column that I write for a film comment called Queer Now and Then. And when I was coming up with all sorts of ideas for that. One of the ideas I had was, oh, maybe this will finally be a good chance to dig into the history of this magazine that I don't really know much about called Films and Filming. Um, and then in kind of discussing that with you, you, Nick smartly said, I think this is maybe a bigger piece. This could be something <laughs> um, for the magazine, more of like a research piece. And then I thought it should actually be that, but also it should have a personal angle because the reason that I found myself intrigued by it was kind of like purely purely personal reasons. So I first encountered it, interestingly, so I have to go into a little personal history. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> years ago. We're, we're going to play some mood music at this point. <laughs> um, but there's a reason. So um, I actually 
my so my first job out of college was actually here at Film Comment Magazine. I got an internship here and um, and then I was brought on to be an assistant editor and I was here for about four years. And then I had left for a while and came back <laughs> in a different context. But while I was here, still an impressionable, young, um, almost out of the closet, 20, early 20-something, 20 I was in the office and I happened upon these stacks of this old magazine called Films and Filming. And I, I looked at them because of the, the, the title, um, very prosaic name for a magazine. And I thought, okay, well, I love, I love reading old film magazines. It was the thing that I adored growing up. I would go to the library and just read old movie reviews. But like instantly when I looked at them, I thought, this is something a little different. Why is like every cover like a hot man? <laughs> Why are all of these photos spreads devoted to like shirtless movie stars, male movie stars? It was very unlike the fan mags and the other kinds of film magazines that I was used to looking at. And so because of that, because of what was being represented and what was so clear to me as this kind of like burgeoning queer kid, I was ashamed. I was ashamed to look at it. So I would kind of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm an ostensibly an adult. I'm in my 20s and I'm, and I'm sneaking peeks at this movie <laughs> magazine and then quickly putting them back on the shelf so nobody would see me. And of course, I was an intern at, and when I initially saw these. So I don't want to be the, the creepy, the creepy, the creepy intern. intern. There goes that, <laughs> that creepy intern again. <laughs> So, so I, but I never thought of it much. Be, and because it, it, it kind of instilled the shame in me, both shame at looking at dirty pictures, shame at being gay, but not entirely aware of it yet or accepting of it yet. I just kind of like shelved it, you know, literally. And then, okay, so then years later, you know, flash forward to, um, I don't know, 2005, uh, 2000, early 2006, I have a job at the Criterion Collection. Lo and behold, there's a full catalog of films and filming on the shelf. And, and, and this, this time they're actually bound. They're like perfectly bound. And I believe this came from the collection of William Becker and who originally owned Janus Films before Criterion. And um, once again, I'm already an out gay man at this point. <laughs> but once again, I feel great shame in looking at it. And I really kind of every once in a while, like again, like go in and sneak a peek. It's one of these things that I was aware at that point that it was okay for me to look at these things, but I couldn't get rid of that like childish sense of shame that I had. And that made me think, and this is how I kind of start the, the essays. It made me think of when I was a child and I first saw this picture of Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire. And that that was kind of like a seismic thing that happened to me. Mm. And... Um, I just want to interject and say when I read your article, I was like, whoa, this is really R-rated. <laughs> like the first paragraph when you're describing Marlon Brando and that very image actually inspired the same feelings in me as a young kid. But I think you have a phrase, filthily swelling biceps. <laughs> so anyone who hasn't read this article needs to read it simply for the erotic rush of that first paragraph. <laughs> well, that photo really... Um, did something to me, and I'm 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 not I'm not not in just like a, the dirty way that everyone's thinking like that. that I, I was kind of mesmerized by it, and I didn't even know what the movie was yet. And I love the way you wrote about it. I mean, yeah. aside from the dirtiness, that that confessional quality was also incredibly moving and prestigious. It was hard. It was hard I for me. Write more like that in the future. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, it was actually hard for me to write because I don't normally like to write. In fact, I'm often like trying to get when I'm editing, trying to get writers to take so the eye much out. More personal than you normally. 
normally go. Um, nice. So yeah. I kind of felt, yeah, there was just, uh, there was something about it. I, I think at one point when I would, my writing about Terrence Davies and writing about long day clothes has kind of opened those doors for me a little bit. Cause that movie is so much about looking and the gaze and the, the shame that can be associated with that. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my, that was my context for writing about films and filming. And then, um, I wanted to kind of dig into the history. And there's a great queer scholar in the UK named Justin Bingry who has written about it in an academic context. And I was in touch with him and um, he, he helped kind of lay the groundwork for a couple of things. And then I went back and I went dug into the archive and I just like went through every issue. that They have them at the Performing Arts Library here. You have to go up to the special, the special room and you can't like take them out of the room and you have to put your keys <laughs> and your wallet into a locker. And you can't, like, they're so scared that you're going to tear something or they're so fragile. Right. And I don't know, I just started to see patterns. Like it was just very, very clear that this was a magazine that was specifically targeted for um, for gay male readers. And it was the name of the company that put it out is called Handsome Books, but Handsome, <laughs> H-A-N-S-O-M. <laughs> but it's just too perfect. And they put out a whole bunch of magazines with amazing titles, amazingly boring titles, like Books and Bookmen yeah, and, dance like and Dancers. And dance. It's like nothing to see here, just films and filming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there was a an, there was an, um, an implicit gay um, context to everything. And this is a time in the UK, this started in 1954, and this is a time in the UK when it was outlawed, like, like homosexual acts between men were outlawed until 1967. And it's really amazing. There's this, there's this editor's letter from 1955, I believe. It's pretty early on um, when it was run. Uh, it was edited by Peter Brinson, who talks about um, just as explicitly as you can imagine. Talks about like the time of the woman is over. No more cheesecake. It's all about beefcake. It's all about men. And it, it's like it's an editor's letter, yeah. basically. Spelling out the philosophy—it's <laughs> like a really misogynistic piece, actually. But it's—but <laughs> it's, it's all super strange. interesting because yeah. this magazine stuck with that through many editorships over the next a few editors over the next few decades. And as you just look at these pictures as the years go on, they become—they become so so filthy. I mean, it's one thing for there to be, you know, an Alan Delon cover every year, and for most of them to be like shirtless Alan Delon pictures. That's one thing. And that's actually, you know, that's sort of sweet in a way. But by the time you get to the late 60s, early 70s, there's like, that, I mean, the Clockwork Orange cover is sort of famous, yes. where it's like, how are you going to represent a Clockwork Orange? I can guarantee the last way you'd ever think of representing it is by showing the cavity inspection as your cover when he goes to prison, he's completely naked, uh, as your cover image. Myra Breckenridge, like with Roger Herron's, um, new to ass um it, it and and like pink narcissus like it, it actually in the 70s started to go kind of underground and and um so so yeah i mean i i, th I thought it was an interesting thing to dig into i won't go too too much into it because i know we want to kind of expand upon this and, and talk about what that actually means but i just thought that it was like a pure distillation of what cinema and desire is and means and how um you can kind of pretend it's not there and you can pretend that cinema isn't like almost always about some form of desire, but it really is. Um, it, the magazine even became a way for, for gay men to connect who in coded language, they had personal ads and they would say bachelor seeks bachelor to talk about movies and motorcycles. It's like, and photograph appreciated, which is my favorite in case you weren't um, sure. So yeah. And I, I just, I was thinking about all these things recently with honestly, I'm not really a film Twitter person. 
I don't understand it, but I'm on there in a, in a you, certain you context. Lurk. <laughs> and there was this whole thing recently about thirst and taking critics and journalists to task for thirstiness. I don't know where it started. I don't know what the origin of it is, but it became this big thing and this, you know, where critics had to defend the fact that they, that they watch movies for like sensual or sexual purposes. So Michael, you, these magazines haunted you for years. <laughs> Like like boomerang back into your life, and then you knew it was going to be like opening Pandora's box, and you finally <laughs> finally cracked them open in the library. How I'm just wondering how did they eventually inform your way of viewing films after reckoning with the content of these magazines? That's an interesting point. I think I would. I think it's so recent that I'm, I'd, I'd probably still be dealing with that. I, I mean, I think that. There's something specific about like the film still and how it's placed and how it's used that that magazine is really, really getting at. And that goes back to like photo play and the early, all the early fan mags and this why people people wanted to kind of own images, right? I mean, there's this talk, this kind of idea of scopophilia where you kind of like own the, the, the image that you desire. Um, yeah. And like the film magazine kind of like literally allows you to do that. And at a time before home video was mainstream and, you know, you really couldn't get something an image that you could keep in your home unless you bought a magazine yeah right oh it's kind of that's the, that's the thing about the marlon brando picture right when i finally saw street canyon desire years later when i wasn't like you know 10 years old anymore and i connected that still to what was happening in the film it completely changes everything i mean alan delon's a good example alan delon is like a shithead <laughs> in real life. I haven't met him. But I mean, so if you post anything on social media about how like, you know, you, he's very clearly one of the most beautiful men that ever lived, which he probably is, you'll get like a whole bunch of responses. How can you say that? He's right. this horrible, horrible, you know, misogynist, homophobe, terrible dad, terrible husband, says awful things. I was like, well, yeah, but isn't that, so what? Like, isn't, isn't, there, isn't there a fantasy? Isn't this all fantasy? Mm. And I think the proliferation of um, the the images of the stars really um, sort of further unmoors them from any biographical details. You know, you open your locker, there's this face that stares out at you every day. You feel like you get the aura of this person, but only in appearance and not in anything beyond that. And um, I feel like, it, to your point, maybe in our culture, we're losing some of that these days. Yeah, that, and that's kind of where I go in in the end of the piece. I think that there's there's like a shameful lack of perversity, like true perversity in in Amer mostly American cinema, maybe even more than that, but certainly in American cinema, um, you know, the the things that people lust after are so generic. You know, I mean, or entire generation is growing up. It's not an honestness. I mean, maybe hmm. may, maybe there's a dishonesty to the things people confess to lust after now. Hmm. Like, like, what do you mean as an example? Because <laughs> I, when I, I was thinking of like Captain well, you, America, you're sure, the one I get who it. Who said everyone's lusting after milk toast people now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying that like Chris Evans isn't a handsome man, and that Captain America can't be your fetish, but. That's a pretty bad fetish, though. But it's because I'm sorry. it's sorry. I do I do judge that. I'm sorry. It's a homogenized culture, but that's why yeah. it's a bad fetish because it's a homogenized culture. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, it's 
Well, something that you capture so well in the piece is that repression is exciting. And I think that's something, especially as gay men, people in um, the LGBT community, there is a sort of nostalgia for that period when we had to hide how we felt because there was an extra extra special rush to that hiding, to that secretiveness, that furtive glance in the video store when I used to look at covers of, you know, the Keanu Reeves movie or whatever, you know, it, that doesn't really exist anymore or in quite the same way um, as it did before. And I think that is something that's captured in that whole period of films and filming that you describe. But is it not? What do you mean it doesn't exist anymore? Because I feel like, I guess or it depends on each person. And of course, yeah. there are many closeted people still who, and even uncloseted people who don't fully own their attractions and desires. I think it's instilled in us early. So we yeah. care, you know, carrying over that shame into adulthood about looking at the magazine still exists with me. If I'm, yeah. if I'm sitting looking at television with my brother, say, he's going to be very, he can be very clear about like, you know, saying that cheerleader is hot. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say the thing that I'm thinking about. Like, you know, if we're watching football and I'm looking at Julian Edelman, <laughs> I, I have to like probably keep that inside or I feel like I have to because it's going to create this discomfort. It's still not a thing that people feel necessarily feel open to talking no, about. No, totally. But I also feel like there is a, there's an aspect of the queer community now where the profession and the confession and the pronouncement of desire is much more central and almost like it's viewed as um, almost announcing yourself and being honest and honest with your identity whereas before you know you couldn't even say anything at all if that makes sense yeah i mean it's, but I, I think it's still it's true it just yeah. still kind of depends on the context and i think when it comes to when it comes to cinema um everybody still has which is what this weird thirst debate yeah. seemed to bring out is like people still have this reticence to kind of fully admit that that's part of what cinema really really is like so like for example like andrew you know for you like, like who's like an actor or a star, a star or a film that kind of brings out. Yeah, I mean, I had crushes, movie crushes from a very young age and would switch between crushes like ever since I was probably five or six years old. And so it went from like Richard Gere to, <laughs> you know, this is very embarrassing. Andy Garcia, Denzel Washington was huge for me. Uh, at a young age, but Tony Leung is really the one that has stuck with me through the decades. And I've got to say his Cantonese name to do it justice, Leung Chu Wai. It's just like so sexy, even just <laughs> hearing that name. But, um, you know, I saw him even when I was young in like Hong Kong TV shows and more commercial movies that um, he was in in his 20s. But of course, what sealed the deal were the Wong Kar Wai movies that came out in the 90s um, that I saw when I was a teenager. And I guess like the context for this, I need to give a little bit of context without being too heavy handed, is that, you know, as we all know, in America and Western culture, Asian men don't really occupy any space in the sort of sexy, the the sex god pantheon. And so for me, you know, going through the years, I've heard, you know, so many 
names bandied about as like the Asian man who's supposed to be sexy, like Daniel Day Kim or uh, John Cho, you know, usually a tall, handsome Asian man. But so encountering Tony Leung sort of in the shadow of Long Duck Dong and Mickey Rooney was <laughs> kind of a moment of pride and joy for me and kind of a revelation. And probably that's why he stuck with me as a lifelong crush that even goes beyond crush, really. it's To me, it almost feels in a possibly perverse way, like a real relationship because he was so... Um, I mean, he was uh, the kind of guy, he wasn't like classically gorgeous like Leslie Cheung. He wasn't like super tall like Chow Yun-Fat. He looked like a kind of guy who would be in my family or be in the Chinese-speaking community that I knew growing up. And of course, he, for me, became kind of like a Cantonese ideal. And I grew up speaking Cantonese, but sort of as I grew older, stopped speaking it. And so he's always been sort of representative of this world that I feel I know intimately, but can never quite be a part of. So that's another layer to it. And I would say what he does that I find so incredibly sexy <laughs> and is that he represents repression. He, in not to say that every character that he play, he's played hedonists, he's played villains before, but the, what he does better than any other actor is sort of embody what it's like to be someone who passionately desires someone with the full knowledge that what you desire will never be obtained, never be acquired. And um, he makes repression in, in In the Mood for Love. I'm speaking specifically about that film, where I, which I think is like the pinnacle of his sex appeal. He just makes repression seem like the hottest, sexiest, most sublime state of being. And yeah, I mean, I go back and... It's true that his sex appeal on screen is sort of animated by his his voice the way he yes. speaks it's sort of quiet but he, and yeah. and you know the the way the articulation of the words are sort of spaced further apart than mm -hmm. than nor the the usual way that actors yeah. do their line readings and so that you almost wait Cantonese. with bated breath for yes. his next word particularly you know? cantonese actors i mean hong kong cinema is so, so fast, fast. Yeah. and you know can't even people who speak cantonese will tell you it is they don't consider it the most beautiful language. Like compared to Mandarin, it's like a little, how would you say it? It's a little gritty. It's a little salty. But the way he People speaks People do it, sound very aggressive when they want to. Yes, when they Cantonese. want to. People are like, why are you always shouting? No, that's just how I talk. But Tony was really the first movie star who I heard speak Cantonese so tenderly with just sublime tenderness. And... It was, it made me love the language. It made me long for the language. And I mean, which works so well with the Wonka Wai films, right? Exactly. Because they're so anchored in the linguistic subtleties of the region. Exactly. And the way, I mean, what's amazing, what's magic about In the Mood for Love is that, I mean, they don't, they're even more repressed than the people in Brief Encounter or Age of Innocence or whatever forbidden love melodrama you want to name. They don't even kiss they don't let alone have sex like no, they don't they, hold hands. they don't even say they love each other like you can't even imagine tony lung saying he loves someone but he's gonna let you know in every other way he's gonna like 
look at you and then not look at you. And he's gonna give you <laughs> he's gonna give you a little spicy mustard. Yes, the spicy mustard. Oh my, oh my god. And just like the half smile, not even a half smile, a quarter smile. Okay, okay. What's your favorite heart fluttering Tony moment in a Walker Y film? Oh my god. I mean, it ha- it might be Chunking Express. When no, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's happy together when he's with Zhang Zhen at the end. Not even with Leslie Chung, but Zhang Leslie Chung is like off. give Zhang Zhen Zhang a little credit yeah. too. He's hot very as hell. Hot. Yeah. Very hot. But um, yeah, you can't tell. Is this platonic? Is it romantic? Zhang Zhen is probably straight. Who knows? But you know. Tony sheds a tear in that bar or whatever it is where Zhang Jin is like recording him. It's just amazing. That and trio of Tony Lung performances with Chungking Express, uh, In the Mood for Love, and uh, 2046. Well, and well, Happy Together, I'm kind of putting outside of it just because like I'm talking about the ostensibly yeah. straight ones, the heterosexual yes. ones. I love Happy Together, of course. Yeah. But there's... I. I rarely have felt an actor that was that magnetic. And don't forget, he's a man in uniform in Chunking Express. Yes. And that's yeah, that's, but, I think my favorite moment is probably in Chunking Express when he um, comes to the fast food stand and he, the for some reason, the corrugated metal door is drawn down. Um, so he has to walk up and duck down and then he looks up and the camera just so unabashedly exploits his visual beauty in this moment. Of course, there's like the slow frame rate that like Chris Doyle and Wonka Wai were working with at, at the time. And so it seems like time is sort of stopped and you're just looking at his face, looking up at his object of affection um, with one eyebrow slightly raised. And like we said earlier, you're just waiting for him to say his first words. You know, that is just so heart-meltingly beautiful to me. I was, And I was just thinking about how there have been a couple instances in his career where he has been in memorable sex scenes. I, I was just thinking of Lost Caution, actually, the Ang Lee film, which was, I think, rated NC-17 in the U.S. or something because of its explicit kind of raw... Um, rutting scenes. I feel like they oversold that aspect they, of the they film did, but, for but it, marketing purposes. But it certainly does have sex scenes and Happy Together opens with, you know, it opens with this black and white sex scene with Leslie Chung, interestingly. But like neither of the, I don't remember either of those scenes being particularly realistic and therefore, you know, when I think of Tony Long and his sexiness, I don't think of the actual sex scenes. And I think that that's just kind of, like, sort of key to Yeah, he's not cinema. good at sex scenes. I mean, it's, <laughs> I feel like he's more of a cerebral. Well, that's why that's why I'm head. saying that repression is his best mode. True. Like because he there's such an inwardness to him. There's like a secret inner life that keeps you wondering what exactly is going through this dude's head. And to me, that's the key to his soulfulness. And so when you see him in bed, like naked, I'm just like, mm, that's where I kind of lose interest because unless he's just in the bedroom eating noodles and congee with Maggie <laughs> Chung and not touching her yes <laughs> and singing songs with her singing Chinese opera with her oh I don't think but I really doubt that it's ever a sex scene that is the kind of awakening, the sexual awakening of a viewer, right? If you think, like, how many people are you going to talk to and say, well, nine and a half weeks is really the movie that opened yeah. things up for me. I very, very much doubt it. I it's don't even going know to what be the, yeah. 
it's going to be, you know, the look that Tony Lung gives under the garage. It's going to be, you know, sliding past Maggie Chung through that really, really narrow corridor when they're picking up noodles, right? I mean, these are the things that you remember. I And I'm, you know, I also have to think back on not even necessarily um, incipient gay things, but like I remember being really, really, really tantalized <laughs> at the climax of Alien when Sigourney Weaver Whoa, is curveball. desperately, you know, trying to make her way across that tiny little pod and she kind of has to slip out of her uh, spacesuit. And there's like no reason she has to do that. The movie is so leering. It's ridiculous. She has these tiny, 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 tiny panties, if you recall. <laughs> and there's all this kind of phallic imagery going on with the alien who's watching her waiting to attack. But like just that movement of Sigourney Weaver across across that that room was something that I could like couldn't I could never get out of my head, right? It's these little gestures, these little these little things. And it's it's very rarely an actual sex scene. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment with features on Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, Olivier Assayas's Nonfiction, Mindy Kaling's Late Night, and an in-depth look at the language of lenses, plus a tribute to Agnes Varda, a special section on the 50th anniversary of Film Society of Lincoln Center, a reassessment of a Mexican auteur, and reviews of new, forthcoming, and streaming releases, and much more. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. We are proud to welcome independent film luminary Mary Heron for our latest film comment free talk on Wednesday, May 8th at 7 p.m. at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Heron, the director of I Shot Andy Warhol and American Psycho, will sit down to discuss Charlie Says, her provocative new film on the Manson family murders. Join us May 8th for what's sure to be a hair-raising, if not quite helter-skelter, conversation. For more information, visit filmlink.org. Aliza, is there an actor for you or is it does it, what do you uh, is there one for me um <laughs> i you know this might come across as being like uh, disingenuous but i promise you it's real like i've never had a crush on an actor before in my life wow um and i i think i've just always been like too aware or conscious of the fact that just aware of the movie making apparatus behind the image. Even before I got into films, I just was, you know, I, I watched the film unfold as, as an artificial portrait, you know? So I never, I never really, but what really tantalized me, which was, you know, very part and parcel of like my, how I came to really be, be, uh, interested in classical Hollywood cinema in, in particular is the way in which pre-code uh, ladies, um, you know, had such a hand in creating their own image for the screen. And to an extent, it, it kind of like made me question um, like how the the image of feminine sexuality um, for everybody else is informed by how these women create mm. their own images in their image of what is sexy. You know, mm. it's there's there's a whole sort of projection thing happening. What I'm referring to is like the way that Anna Mae Wong, yeah. um, you know, created her own um, very unique brand of Orientalist mm -hmm. um, sex appeal. Um, in response to what she thought other people wanted. And of course, yeah. um, having read something about her her biography, you, you 
know that like she is the child of um, Chinese immigrants, grew up in Chinatown, and you know her father had wanted a, a son, um, but instead got Anna, and so she was encouraged to actually cross dress as a boy when she was younger. Mm. And she worked for her family's laundry um, business, and she would go and drop off laundry for her family, and she would she would take that opportunity to dress up. And I guess you know, having been in such close proximity with all sorts of different clothing, um, you know, it, it fed something into. Uh, um, I guess it imprinted onto her mind that um, the 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 image of sex appeal had everything to do with how you presented yourself and how mm-hmm. you clothe yourself. Um, and and it's fascinating um, looking at her in in these insanely ornate, um, very sort of hyperbolic and you know loaded sig- with cult- you know signifiers um, in in every outfit, but. Um, it was fascinating to watch that and and try to uh, reverse engineer how that came to be. Obviously, it was you know wrought by the studio to some extent, but but I think it was also informed by um, all these aspects of her own life and her own background. And to to some extent, it was um, the the sort of commingling of the two that created this this um, iconic look for her. Um, and I also think about the way that you can reverse engineer someone like Marlena Dietrich's mm. look through from her outfits to the way that she, you know, insisted on specific ways of being lit or being filmed, certain angles that she, you know, taught herself to be in to to look good for the camera. I mean, famously she said she she didn't dress for men, but she only dressed or for herself, she only dressed for the camera. But but through the way she looked on screen, you could reverse engineer like all these different aspects of her background or attempt to. And that to me was fascinating because you could almost identify with that as a, as a girl, you know, getting up and getting dressed every morning or even just looking on screen to try to find um, echoes of what you see up there in your own life in the way that you can perform different um, archetypes or at least stereotypes of sexuality. You know, it's it's always a performance, I think, to some degree. So that, you know, for me, that was a fascinating aspect of watching films growing up and like becoming a film lover was not so much like falling in love with the main love interest on screen, but just more looking at how women presented themselves and and thinking about the ways that that mirror or run contradictory to the way that I thought I should present myself or um, I don't know, does that does that make sense? Yeah. For sure, yeah. I mean, and it's it's really interesting to think about all of the, um, despite how you know how we talk about women and how on film and how you know they're controlled by the male gaze and all. I mean, there it's history is just riddled with actresses who were in control of their own image, mm-hmm. and who kind of like you're saying it was it was it was it was the sense that if they um, if they knew how to use the camera to their benefit, they could kind of reverse that entire relationship with the camera and with the viewer. And it was really, it's really interesting because I think about, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why so many gay men identify more with and are more fascinated by 
actresses. Mm-hmm. Um, the men in classical Hollywood don't really have a very good relationship with the camera. There's really not much, at least that I can see, that's of much interest. Like I, I grew up not having much of an interest in any men whatsoever on film for mm-hmm. for most for most of Hollywood. The the Brando mm-hmm. picture um, and Brando himself in that small pocket of time in the early 50s mm. is really an exception. I can talk about the charm of of Gary Cooper, uh, you know, the laconic charm of Gary Cooper mm. or the, uh, you know, the the, the kind of um, caddishness of Clark Gable or, or the feminine beauty of Rudolph Valentino, however we're supposed to talk about these men. Mm. But they're not that interesting to me. Well, it's like they're always looking at something else on screen and yeah. that something else is almost always a woman. Um, and the women are, in a way, they almost have more agency because they're they're the ones being looked at um, by both the audience and and the male star. And but they're the ones shown as, you know, characters going about and doing doing actual things. Right. As opposed to so like if you're watching a Carol Lombard Clark Gable scene. Yeah. Who are you looking at? Because exactly. Who, because which of those are re- looking back at you? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. The answer is Carol Lombard, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anybody was wondering. That, I mean, that has been true of my experience of classic Hollywood, too. But I have to say that recently I started falling for Cary Grant in a very real way. So he is kind of an exception. For me, to he's me. like the ultimate I example agree. of somebody I do not connect with. Really? Like, not that I've, I don't find him sexy so much as I, I find every single moment to be absolutely fascinating and just completely the control of his comic timing I think and he's his image. Incredibly and, talented. I notorious yeah. one of my favorite performances yeah. ever. So complicated and strange yeah. and sadistic. But in terms of just that kind of like pure animal yeah, energy, yeah, yeah. I, I've always been fascinated by him being kind of the ultimate man from dreamland. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Almost untouchable in a way. But that can be sexy too. Yeah. I yeah. I love also Kay Francis. <laughs> I mean, and those who know me know that like she's sort of this object of fascination for me because she was one of the first uh, like clothed horses in in Hollywood. Because before her, a lot of a lot of women on screen were extremely uh, voluptuous, let's say, and they didn't fit clothes in the way that like you know um, like a tall like statuesque woman would just prop up an outfit. And, you know, she had this incredibly tragic life. You know, what fascinates me about her was that she wasn't that, like, classically beautiful, too, in, a, in an era of, you know, that sort of defined classical Hollywood beauty. And so it was like her, it was almost like her sex appeal and her personality, or at least persona, transcended her image to create this, like, on-screen sex appeal, you know, and... and and for some reason, even though she she did not exist in a, a time when actresses had much steering power over their careers, she you know seemed to always play very similar roles. The, the, the tragic, like you know, fallen, love-struck woman who gives everything to the man, and you know the man sort of falls for her, but eventually something something happens and it, it cannot be so i don't know for for me that was that was another very fascinating sexual presence on screen i've been kind of fascinated by just going back to like early on in the, the conversation the, the sense that it's somehow taboo still to bring in these these feelings and and and, and uh, uh, into your writing or in, into your criticism as if it's somehow 
like invalidates what you're talking about. And that's, that's strange because it's so key. I mean, I, Michael, even like in your article, I already, you already said this now, but like movies are desire, I think is he say. And um, so that's something that's really stuck with me. Fear and Desire. Fear and Desire. To use a certain filmmaker's first film title. But yeah, I mean, well, Desire can be fear, right? I mean, I was I was also thinking about like particular films, like to move away from actors, like particular films that kind of engender or, you know, make certain feelings or emotions arise. And, and I, I'm really kind of, I've been fascinated by the, and many people have talked about it and, I'm, and I know I'm going back to Ellen DeLon again, but I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, the duo of Purple Noon and the talented Mr. Ripley. Um, because they're so, right, they're, um, they're not exactly narratives of pride. If you're looking at them as, 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 as you know, gay films or homoerotic films, they're, it, they're both about kind of like murderous homoeroticism. Um, but there's something about the way those narratives function that make them incredibly sensual and appealing and it's it's it comes out in the filmmaking you know Rene Clement and Anthony Minghella were were heightening the the kind of hothouse atmosphere but I think it really both films really tap into that kind of illicitness the shame the shame of desire very few films get at that um and I, I remember feeling especially when Ripley came out in 99 that it was pretty rare to watch um an American film or you know American-ish <laughs> Uh, middle brow, whatever you want to call it, right. prestige movie that actually tapped into some of those feelings. Um, and, you know, Jude Law being the object of desire in Talented Mr. Ripley was a very big deal for me. Right. I have to say, I would say it was like, there's like Brando. <laughs> Many years later, there was Jude, Jude Law and, and yeah. Ripley. And I think I've probably mentioned that in this podcast before, so I probably shouldn't talk about it that much. Um, but it's, 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 but those are movies about like unattainable objects that drive people to like erotic derangement yeah well it's interesting that the kind of beauty that each of them have is this kind of like at least the, you know for that stage for jude lies this weird kind of immaculate you know um beauty to them i don't know ellen delon as well but i think it's an interesting question like how do you how do you discuss desire and in, in films in in the realm of criticism mm -hmm. there seems to be this um sort of contradictory impulse, right? To want to break down a film in terms of its mise-en-scene or its te technical qualities, and but then, um, or even its narrative structure, or you, you can talk about all these things about the way it's written and filmed and acted, but, but desire is sort of this uh, intangible, irrational right. feeling that you you know, that this this is the reason why we have cinema, but it's also the reason why we can't really break it down into criticism at right. one and the same time. And I guess the central contradiction really haunts our sort of public discourse, if you want right. to say. Right. I was going to say, it's not that we can't do it, it's that we're not allowed to do it right now. Right, right. I feel like there is there is a great uh, history of, of film criticism, whether you like the critics or not, like a, like Pauline Kael, frankly, yeah. or, or Parker Tyler, who were mm -hmm. kind of diving headlong into that, into the, those questions. These days, yes, it's kind of looked upon as yeah, like a weakness. Well, there's a mistrust of the visceral, partly in the backlash to Pauline Kael, who I think is a master, no matter what you think of how she approached cinema or what her ideologies were or what she thought about the medium as a whole. I think she really captured the visceral sexuality. I mean, obviously just in the book titles, 
I lost it at the movies, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I mean, she was really into that. And I think in the wake of sort of the backlash against her way of viewing movies, there's been an overall mistrust of any um, just giving in to the visceral power of the screen rather than problematizing that visceral uh, feeling. And I think there is a confessional quality to writing like mm. in this in this way, right? Yeah. That I think people are afraid of today because it, it out of fear of exposing too much about themselves and also showing too much emotion. Well, and I kind of am hesitating to even go into this because it's kind of something that still embarrasses me. But I one movie that really I obs- the last movie that I really obsessed about in terms of just actually being haunted and pulled back into the theater nine times was Call oh. Me By Your Name, which I'm so embarrassed to even wow. say this on this nine podcast, times. but you guys are getting it. Yeah. I, I'm embarrassed because it was not a movie that I wanted to like. It's not even a movie that I'm quite sure I even like. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, like every ounce of my body is resisting it. And yet something about it, it I'm not even attracted to the two of them. Like it's, but it was something about, I, I don't know, I can't even explain it. But there was such a reaction against the film within the LGBT community, especially more like woke folks that like... The woke, um, the woke folk. You felt like you couldn't even say that this movie was super hot. I thought it was super hot. And that's that feeds into this whole idea of that we're talking about of um desire and um uh, the lust that the screen can inspire being quite irrational because that- even to this day, even after nine times watching this movie that I'm not even quite sure is even that good, I cannot explain. And it's not even, it's not purely sexual. It's like, I'm actually deeply moved by this movie. Um, but I really can't explain why. Well, see, it's a movie that I, I had my, my issues with, but it's a good example of something that I'm really glad exists and that they just kind of went for it because it's a very... Um, it, it, it opens all kinds of doors, right? Or all kinds of Pandora's boxes. And it just kind of heedlessly goes where it goes. And I think that that is probably the best thing you can say about uh, Luca Guadagnino's career, right? He's, he's not necessarily making movies based on trends or based on what will be the accepted norm for desire at any given time. There, that movie just made a lot of people uncomfortable, and I and as I said earlier, I wish there were more f- films that made people uncomfortable. So I'm glad that it's that it, it elicits those responses in people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange to think if this is somehow like a puritanical American like cinema influence, like having such a broad reach. But I mean, I guess you know, we still exist in a world of the MPAA and like what you know what gets released, and it's it's kind of we take it so much for granted that there's just a whole swath of human experience that's not going to be making it on the way to the majority of screens, you know? Um, I mean, but I don't know. This is something I could have said like 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's kind of crazy, but... Yeah, no, that doesn't change. And, and movies get more and more disgustingly violent. Right. They become that's more the and more chaste. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's just the American way, I guess. I don't <laughs> think that's really ever going to change. Like, yeah, it seems like a pretty straightforward, I don't know, 
case. There, there, there is something really amazing though about like when when a, a particularly sensual moment on screen hits and you're in a movie theater. It's this whole surrender to the screen thing, right? Mm. To to evoke Sontag, um, of being just feeling everyone in awe of what they're seeing on the screen. Yeah. Like when I remember the first time I was in the movie theater watching In the Mood for Love and there it's the first diner scene and they're, you know, they're sort of cosplaying at e as each other's spouses sitting <laughs> at the table ordering for each other. And as the camera just sort of liltingly pans back and forth. Um, you just feel everyone in the theater kind of sink into their seat a little <laughs> bit because they're, you know, there's a sort of aspect of removal to the way that the the scene is put together mm. in the way that they're playing other characters in the film as characters. But then you realize that this one at the same time, they're starting to fall for each other, you know, yeah. and um, and then just the act of eating and drinking together that I think there's always a very sensual aspect to that, um, which Wong Kar fully uses to his advantage in every film he makes. Um, just that, that sensation, you know, yeah. you can talk about the way the camera moves. You can talk about the, the frame rate. You can talk about, you know, the lighting or the, the costumes, but I mean, that sensation that's felt in, in the audience, in the dark, that's not something you can easily talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That discomfort and and it, yeah, productive discomfort. Yes. I, I remember like movies that you've seen many, many, many times growing up. If you, you you're suddenly seeing them with other people, certain things come out of the film that you never realized were really there. Yeah. Like a good example is um, I I grew up watching Cabaret, Bob Fosse's amazing movie. Um, to the you know I, to the extent of knowing it line by line basically. And I always, I knew that there were scenes that were, you know, more interestingly erotic than others. But see, when you're confronted with it in the big screen, there's that scene where um, Liza Minnelli and Michael York and Helmut Green are kind of, they're drunkenly swooning around the room, the three of them. And then they get together in that one, one shot where their faces are all pressed up against each other. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable that this, this was in this movie at this point in time where these these two men's faces and then a woman's face are pressed against each other and you know that what they're doing is talking they're thinking without speaking they're they're um coming upon the idea of having sex with each other <laughs> and th they will all have sex with each other at some point that will all remain off screen but seeing it with people in the audience you could just kind of feel the theater shift and people being really 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 quiet and realizing what was going on you're just having this commune with the screen and and you're it's erotic. It's an erotic relationship. Yeah. yeah, I mean that. You're asking what I was jotting down before. That was one thing was just this kind of mix of public and private about the the experience in the theater. That you're you're watching things play out writ large, but you have this very private personal connection with it and immediate reaction to it. Which yeah, you're aware of that the rest of the audience, but it's also very personal, and there's can be kind of a tension between that. So it's like it's speaking just to you, but to everyone, and that almost brings us back. To, to the magazine a bit, to, to films and filming, the sense that you're reading this, right. you know, that everyone, everyone's reading it, but it's clear it's not apparent to everyone how, how you know, people are connecting to it, so. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the interesting things is when I was doing re research, you know, anecdotal research at first and asking oh, people right. around the community, <laughs> you know, if they knew the magazine, what they thought of it, v like invariably, ostensibly straight, straight people 
had no idea that it was a gay magazine. They would say, it is? That's crazy. And then if I would talk to, you know, a gay person who, who had come across it, they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I had talked to Peter Cowie, who had written for it in the 60s. And he, and he you know, he is, he's a straight man, for sure. And he's, <laughs> he, love, he extols the virtues of, of beautiful women on film. He's done this for many years. He's a, a, you know, a great historian also. Um, but, um, but I asked him about it, and he said even in the 60s, people, people knew if he was going to get an assignment there, they'd say, oh, you're writing for queers and queering. And of course, that was a horrible insult at, in that time to Boy. say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of like what I was saying about when we were talking about Tell to Mr. Ripley and Purple Noon and this idea of kind of like illicit forbidden love. Um, I feel like I know there's a movie, Aliza, that you were talking about. Yeah, the, a movie that I watch and rewatch many times um, without really, like Andrew was saying, I, without really knowing why, is um, Elia Kazan's Splinter in the Grass. I think it's just such a fascinating object of, um, of desire and also about desire um, with all the characters. Um, well, all the, the, the entire cast is absolutely sublime and at the top of their game. Ilya Kazan is having his sort of comeback after the, the shame-faced uh, blacklist incident that took up the previous decade of his life. And he's on a roll at this point. So, you know, these he's churning out hit after hit. Um, and this film is just, I mean, first of all, like these, it, it is a costume drama, right? I mean, it's a period piece. It's, it's set in Kentucky in 1929. And it's, it's sort of about these, almost a Romeo and Juliet conceit of these star-crossed lovers in high school. And the high school is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's like <laughs> times never change because you, you, you look at high school dramas now and it's still like everyone, everyone looks like they're, you know, 28 <laughs> in high school. Everyone's fully formed. Everyone's perfectly dressed. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but, and everyone's very like, you know, aware, if not comfortable with their sexual prowess, you know? And so for me, like there's a sort of wish fulfillment um, aspect to watching that unfold because I was never like that in high school. Neither was anybody else I know. <laughs> I mean, maybe there were, but like, I definitely do not know people like that. Just the whole film is sort of 19, well, it was made in 61. And, um, and it was about 1950s repression, but coded in the milieu of late 20s um, South. And so I feel like he was able to sort of push the bounds in terms of how radically uh, political he could be mm. because of the, the sort of codedness of the film. You know, this was a, a world where ostensibly you had the cookie cutter suburb and the white picket fences, or you had the the mental asylum, right? You had like the good girl or mm. the bad girl. But then through his depiction of these characters, you realize, no, actually, you know, that that's sort of the template that he sets up. And then the whole film proceeds to um, disrupt those stereotypes that he's actually talking about. Mm. So 
you know, one thing that's immediately striking is how it is the chemistry on screen. And, you know, yeah. reading a little bit about the production of the film, you realize like it was a pretty sexually charged set too. Mm. you know, like Barbara Loden, who plays Ginny, the sister mm. in the in the family was having her ongoing affair with Elia Kazan at the time and Natalie, uh, Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty, the, the main couple in the film were having an off-screen affair during the production as well. Mm. Um, and so when, you know, the, the, f the opening shot of the film is set in this waterfall, you know, which is just so like men like visually loaded with, with sexual metaphor mm. and, you know, the two, are sitting in a convertible and they're they're just making out with each other and this sexual tension of like really wanting it from each other and not being able to get it mm. is is that that insane energy is sustained throughout the entire film and it finally comes to a head where you know people the the characters can't stand it anymore it, mm. it literally drives one person into a mental asylum and I think, you know, the the sort of push and pull of this the social ideology that the film is pushing and also the sort of like unmoored uh, sexual tensions that it's exploring, like really um, heightens the sensual appeal of the, the entire film. And it, it just mm. it contains so many multitudes and it says so much about desire and desire on screen that it's something that I keep going back to time and time again. That's such a good that's such a good choice. I don't know another film that captures the derangement of n new I incipient teenage sexuality, at least as I personally experienced it, yeah. like in to so accurately the extremes. I mean, there's that scene. I actually barely remember the movie. It was many years ago that I saw it. But you that scene <laughs> where Natalie Wood is in the bathtub and she just starts screaming like hysterically. At her yeah, mother. it's such a yeah. it's such a thin <laughs> line between um, sexual desire and and violence. Yeah. Um, as Hysteria. a response to not being able to 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 um, satisfy the desire. Yeah. Like at one point, Warren Beatty's character has Natalie Wood on her knees and he says, you know, it, it turns from a very tender scene very quickly into, you know, a shouting match between the two of them where he's like saying, you know, saying to her, tell me you'll do anything for me. And she starts crying because she's like, I would do anything for you, but this is, this is an, you know, sort of gesturing at how crazy and out of hand it had gotten. And sort of, you know, that, that waterfall, you know, as a, as a visual metaphor for just um, how uncontained the desire is throughout the entire film, I think is, is, and, and also the character of Ginny, the, the, the Barbara Loden character, who is this force of nature. She's mercurial and um, and she's really there to disrupt the entire family setup. And uh, she comes from out of nowhere. She's come home from somewhere and she, you know, is this seductress who goes around and um, she gets she loves drinking at, in the era of prohibition. And she, you know, hooks up with a with a bootlegger and almost uh, gets herself into trouble with, uh, you know, like in a gang rape scene that Warren Beatty saves her from. And, you know, she, she spoiler alert, she like dies um, 
halfway through the film. So her role is actually very small, objectively, but it's so pivotal in that after she dies, her spirit, which is like that spirit of unhinged sexuality, of, of you know, the id flip side to the superego of the, the, the city where the film is set, um, kind of haunts everyone and sort of makes everyone break down in the second half of the film. It's actually it's crazy how that movie, it feels so singular and so alone. It, it, like when I think of that movie, I don't think of it as being connected to any real genre. Sometimes I think, oh, it's a melodrama, but it doesn't really feel like the late 50s melodramas from Hollywood. It doesn't really feel like the later, the films of the later 60s that were a little more open. Right. Um, it doesn't feel like a teen movie. It doesn't feel like anything. And it's kind of amazing how any other movie that was set in high school, however unrealistic the high school was, or that was about teenagers. Uh, I can't think of another one that got at that kind of rawness and that that sort of like desperate sexuality. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about actually not showing the thing, but talking or showing around the, the act of um, sex that makes it all the more potent. Because I, I was thinking about you know, in the realm of something like in the realm of the senses, you know, where, which is much more overtly ideological in its conceit. And Oshima, who always said like, oh, I'm interested in exploring the connection between the lower half of the human body and our uh, social apparatus or something like this. He shows so much sex in that film, Mm. but I, I don't think anyone thinks of it as a sexy film. I hope not. I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. But that's part of like a whole other weird like <laughs> 70s subgenre yeah. international yeah. films that were pushing the envelope. But but Smell in the Grass is so much about like American Puritanism. And I don't think it's much of a surprise that there are so few movies that are actually about that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's It almost feels like a mistake that that movie yeah. got through. Yeah, there's a Trojan horse quality to it for sure. Like you think you're going in to watch something that will be like cleanly resolved. And in the end, it's just blown wide open, you know. And it's also one of those movies. self-destructs almost. One of those movies that um, forever changes the way you think about the actors in it. Like I would, I would think Warren Beatty, of course, Mm -hmm. this is the very beginning of his career. He would go on to make many big films and he'd be a huge star. And some of them had sexual themes like shampoo sort of, but. I don't think anything ever got to that place again of that kind of raw magnetic sexuality. And Natalie Wood, this was, you know, she was, she'd been a child actor and this was really like coming into her own as an adult sexual star. And like, I, like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is a good example of Natalie mm-hmm. Wood kind of like trying to be part of the sexual revolution. I guess I love that movie. I think it's really, really great. Um, but this, this forever, no matter what their careers became or what they were, like I always think of Splendor in the Grass as this kind of like pivot point, this, this central thing that forever changes the way I think about them. Yeah. And, and, and somehow just improbably something that doesn't age a day, like you, you watch it and it, the feeling is so immediate and no one's happy at the end. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like one of the ultimate bummer endings. <laughs> that you know? barren, barren house. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, there's a scene where they're, they're necking in Natalie Wood's house and then mm-hmm. the mom comes home, the very shrill, very conservative and opportunistic mom comes home and then they, they quickly rise to go to the piano and they pretend <laughs> to be playing the piano. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like everyone's had moments like that where they're like, oh, shit, my mom's coming home. Like, better, better act fast. You know, it's like, like, yeah, it does feel super current in that yeah. sense. And to the point where it's like, I'll show different people the film and they'll be like, wait, when was this film made? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think we're almost coming into the end of the time that we have. I don't know. Michael, any, any final thoughts as our, our ringmaster of desire? <laughs> I cannot be thought of as a ringmaster of desire. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start. How about start. our ambassador of desire? You guys can't see him right now, but he's actually in uh, recline in his silken feather robe. <laughs> we'll release some photographs from the making of this podcast. Behind the scenes shots. And they'll, they'll stir the desires of a whole new generation. <laughs> Um, no, I, I just, I, it, it's, it's been really fun to dig into these things. And there's obviously like a million more movies yeah. that we could talk about. Um, we could talk about the time that I saw Mike, Michael B. Jordan in person. Oh my God. But we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> that was a whole other thing. <laughs> but that's oh. an interesting thing. Like when you, when, you, when you see an actor in real life, does it, yeah. does it break the mystique or does it enhance it? In that case, it enhanced it. <laughs> okay. I was like walking by and I saw his eyes and you saw my eyes. and then I, I don't want to meet Tony. I mean, I do, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say you know, one more thing about that is that I had a long time crush on Ewan McGregor, and then you I told me the story before, him. and he was perfectly nice. But there's just there was something of the mm. taken off the pedestal. Just no in offense, terms of Ewan, the image. if you're listening, I love. I will love him forever. <laughs> Somewhere lost Ewan's forever. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, to go back to Splendor in the Grass, um, you, when you first go into Natalie Wood's bedroom, she mm. literally has a shrine of Warren Beatty oh, in her bedroom. Like, yeah. I don't remember if there are actual candles, but yeah. it's just like a whole wall of his images and yeah. then his name. And then she's like writing and rewriting their mm. names in her notebook in class. And there is a certain element to the sort of repetition and proliferation of yeah. someone's image. Mm. And, and, you know, especially if you can't see them in real life, like that elevates them to like almost a demigod status. And even though I'm not someone who could ever really tap into that, like paparazzo, like waiting around the block <laughs> for like hours on end in adult diapers to catch a glimpse of a person <laughs> to catch their actual human aura, you you're, know, like pretty familiar I, with the preparations required though. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it though. Think about it. They're out there for hours. I just, I don't understand it. I'll never understand that, but I'll I never do, think of it the same way. Again. I can see, I can see how, you know, you could psych yourself into a state of worshiping, you know, someone who's ultimately human yeah. as a sort of like demigod status. In that way, I feel like cinema is the ultimate tease. It's capturing what seems like real life, even in, to go back to Wong Kar Wai, the slow-mo is like, oh, let's slow this down so you can really possess that image, possess that person in that mm. moment. And yet you are never, it, it, it's such a tease because you are never actually achieving any kind of intimacy with that person on screen. And so mm. that's why it's the ultimate medium of desire. The showing and withholding. Well, that seems like a good moment to, to end on. Desire, tantalizing as ever. Desire, t still tantalizing. Uh, but uh, anyway, thank you all so much. This has been very stimulating. Thank you.
been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.